Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello once again sports fans and welcome to this special edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. I'm your host, Dana Augusta. This special edition is a series that I'm doing celebrating the 75th anniversary of the NBA. And right now we are reaching the climax of its 75th season, which is the NBA Finals, featuring the Golden State Warriors who, as a franchise, while based in Philadelphia, won the very first NBA championship in 1947. Meanwhile, their opponents, the Boston Celtics, are tied with the Los Angeles Lakers with the most championships with 17. Right now, they're playing for their 18th banner to be hung in TD Garden. And I got to thinking, we had already did a couple of shows about the 75 greatest players. Now we're going to talk about the greatest teams in NBA history. Who was the greatest team, the best collection of players to hoist up the Larry O'Brien Trophy or the NBA Trophy before there was the Larry O'Brien Trophy? And to do that, we talked to who I call the, the Dean of Basketball History here at the Sports History Network. That is none other than Rick Loiza. And his expertise and knowledge of the game is truly remarkable, and that is evidence right here on this episode. Once again, this is the third installment, third series, uh, third show in a series that I'm doing celebrating the NBA's 75th anniversary. And coming up, me and Rick will sit down and have a discussion about the greatest teams in NBA history. So sit back, tune, pump up the volume, and check out this new latest special edition of the Sports History Network's Historically Speaking Sports. We'll be back right after this message. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. Hello, welcome back to another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and tonight we have a uh, very, another very special guest who is a, a, who's not a stranger to the program, and, uh, who, and he is who I would call the, the Dean of Basketball History here at the Sports History Network, and there ain't nobody, none other than the great Rick Loiza, who's coming to us, and should I say the award-winning, 
podcaster from the Sports <laughs> History Network, Rick Loiza. And Rick, great to have you on board tonight. How you doing? I'm doing great, Dana. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the kind introduction. Oh, man, that is not a problem. Not a problem at all. Um, we're going to be talking about something that I think that is maybe it's part of some of the great barbershop conversations and debates that we that, that you would have across the country, especially dealing with it being the 75th anniversary of the NBA. Uh, and that is some of the greatest teams ever. Now, in, in the NFL, everybody talks about the 72 Dolphins and the 85 Bears and that sort of thing. And in baseball, it's the 27 Yankees and so forth and so on. In the NBA, there's quite a few, you know, and there's, and with, and I want to come to you because since, you know, you're like the resident basketball dean of the, of the network. And I want to come to you and just wanted to talk to you about who do you think are some of the five greatest NBA teams ever and that you could start off I don't know if you have it listed or I don't know how how you have them ranked or whatever but just let's just dive into this conversation about it um first off I want to say that I have about five I actually have like eight that are that are significant in my opinion and again I don't have them ranked and you could just dive in and start off wherever you want to start off all right well I did I put together five so I got my five teams first and then rank them. So my number one season uh, in the NBA, in the NBA history was the 96 Chicago Bulls. They went 72 and 10. They won the championship defeating Seattle in the finals. So that to me was the greatest season ever. Uh, You know, Michael Jordan won MVP that year. He led the league in scoring uh, 30 points a game. Rodman led the league in rebounding at just under 15. Of course, you know, Pippen and Kukoc, the whole crew, um, to me, and it's it, because they had, I know the Warriors broke that regular season record with 73, but they didn't win the championship. So I can't make them number one. So I had to go with the Bulls, 72 and 10 and the championship. Well, I mean, you, I remember that team because I was around and I remember watching that team and, and um, this seemed almost unstoppable. That was the first, you know, that, that year they played the Sonics in the finals. Um, and it just seemed like Seattle coming into that series as well. They what they had a very remarkable team as well. They finally got to the finals two years after suffering the biggest upset in the history of the NBA postseason, losing to Denver in five. Um, and then they were a very formidable team because I think they won, if I'm not mistaken, like 58 or 59 games that year and any of the year they would have been a prohibitive favorite. But, oh, of absolutely. course, you're going against Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Tony, Tony Kukoc, Dennis Rodman, and the Bulls that went 72-10, and 10, uh, which is the first team ever to break 70. Uh, in fact, I remember the, the, the game they broke the 70-win mark. It was against Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, if I'm not mistaken. And Michael Jordan had something of an off night, but – you had the supporting cast there, and I think that that team is one of the most complete teams in NBA history that you could at least – I mean, you could say that they, they were from top to bottom, bench players. And, of course, you have the coaches with Phil Jackson. That was probably one of the most best top to bottom 
teams across the board maybe you've ever seen in this league. Absolutely. One of the things I remember about that time that I can't remember which coach said it to Phil Jackson, but they said, they said, Phil, you are so lucky. And he said, well, what do you mean? He goes, your two best offensive players, Jordan and Pippen, are also your two best defensive players. And so he doesn't have to uh, substitute like other coaches do. Other coaches will take an offensive guy off the floor because he needs defense and vice versa. Phil Jackson could just ride Jordan and Pippen knowing they're going to play both ends of the court at an elite level. And that year, I mean, just my opinion, Jordan Pippen and Rodman were the best defender at their respective positions in the entire league. You had the best defender at the two, the three, and the four. And yet, I mean, what are you going to do with that? I mean, it was, and I think also that 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 team, if you really think about it, they were the ones who kind of brought in or introduced like what we see today, like positionless basketball, because there was no set point guard on that team. There was no set center. You know, it was like five of your best players that were so interchangeable, especially and also with Tex Werner running the triangle offense, which was the height of the, you know, of, of that offensive prime, you know, running, running the triangle. And that was the staple of those Chicago Bulls in the mid to in the really throughout the entire decade of the 90s, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right, because you would see that's a beauty of the triangle is, I mean, Ron Harper technically was the point guard, but you would see Jordan bring the ball up, Pippen would bring the ball up. You know, it, it, it was interchangeable, like you said. Uh, I mean, you you had Longley in the post. I mean, he was never going to go outside. Uh, but sometimes you had Robin sitting in the post. You had Jordan in the post. You had Pippen in the post. Like, you had four guys who could play in the post at any given possession. It was they could do anything and everything you wanted. They, uh, I mean, you're, I don't, that team did not have a weakness. I don't think there was anything any coach could have done to say, ah, this is what we're going to attack them. It just, and, and what you said earlier, just to piggyback what you said earlier, if it wasn't for those Bulls teams, there were a whole lot of other teams that could have won a championship, like Seattle, if the Bulls aren't there, if, if, if Jordan's still playing baseball, then Seattle wins that championship, I think. And, uh, and then, if, you know, that's, he, a lot of guys. There's a lot of a lot of guys without rings because of Jordan. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, a prime example: Reggie Miller and, and uh, Patrick Ewing in '96. Yeah. I mean, the, the 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 season before '90. I mean, then you had a young, you know, Orlando Magic team, you know, who eliminated the Bulls the year before. You know, when Jordan came back from playing baseball. Um, you had that. I mean, the NBA during the mid '90s was so loaded talent-wise that I mean, you see it now in the way that the the the, the way the 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 league is right now is very reminiscent of those of the 1990s. You know, because you had so many different teams. You know, if you took if you took Michael Jordan and the Bulls out of the equation, I really do think that you have the New Yorks, the Indianas, Miami was good. You know, and then that's just in the Eastern Conference. In the West, you had Seattle, Utah, Houston, who was, who had won just won back-to-back NBA titles. Uh, San Antonio was up there, you know, with David Robinson and Sean Elliott. Uh, you had so many great teams in the 1990s. But, of course, you have Michael Jordan and you have Scottie Pippen and, of course, the ringmaster himself, uh, you know, Coach Phil Jackson, running the show, you know, running, running those Bulls teams. That was, you know – Probably the top of the top. And, and to be honest, that was my number one, the, the 96 Bulls. That was yeah. my number one as far as like the greatest team I have ever seen, you know. And I think, you know, I think, like I said before, you and I may be in agreement on that. 
you know, with, you know, the Bulls being the, the, the best team in the 75-year history of, of the league. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I'd never seen the way that the way that season went for the Bulls. I'd never seen anything like that. Uh, by like that that whole three P because everything they were still the same core team in ninety seven ninety eight but that was just something else and uh, I think it'll be a, a, quite a while I mean the Warriors are really close this current Warriors dynasty I mean it, it is right there behind that that Jordan Bulls three uh, P but um, but yeah it, it's it's like every twenty years you see a team that dominates the way they dominate for an extended period. Okay, now we're gonna go to 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 the next team that's on your list. You know, we got the '96 Bulls out of the way. Who is next on your list? All right, this I think we might diverge a little bit because I know you're a Celtics fan. I'm a Lakers fan, and so maybe so. At number two, I put the 1972 LA Lakers. They went 69 and 13. Uh, coach, the coach by Bill Sharman. They were, I mean, that was Jerry West, uh, Will Chamberlain, Gail Goodrich. Elgin Elgin Baylor started the season, and this was just so crazy. Elgin Baylor started the season, but retired nine games into the season because his knees were just hurting so much. And the day he retired was when they started that thirty-three game winning streak. When Jim Jim McMillian Jim McMillian stepped in for Baylor to start, and they ran off thirty-three in a row. And uh, yeah, that that's my number two team. They just they ran through that season. They just bulldozed their way through that season. Well, I'm not mad at you for putting that team on the list because I have them on my list as well. It's a win to 33. Now, the whole thing with Elton Baylor, I did not realize that yeah. he retired nine games. I knew he retired. I knew he wasn't on the front, on the team when they made it to the finals against the New York Knicks. But I never knew that he retired nine games and replaced by Jim McMillan and reeled off the 33 wins in a row, which is the longest winning streak in, in, in the history of North American pro sports, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was funny about that. I was looking through, through the, the, uh, some of the player stats from that year. I didn't realize that the leading scorer was Gail Goodrich. And I mean, there's no offense to Goodrich. He's in the hall of fame for a reason, but he was a leading scorer at 25.9 West was right behind him at 25.8. And Will Chamberlain, and then it was Jim McMillian, and then Will Chamberlain was fourth in scoring on that team. It was a very balanced team. It wasn't like the, the Lakers team of old, whenever you had like West and Chamberlain and, and Baylor doing their thing. It was more balanced, you know. Oh, yeah. And what was what was interesting, I remember watching something about that team. And Will Chamberlain himself said that that was one of the least talented teams he had ever played on. <laughs> I think that's just a- he, he said he played on teams that would have made that team look like nothing, but it, but they just <laughs> caught fire, you know, yeah. and won 33 in a row, which was amazing to me. I, I still, sometimes Chamberlain said stuff that had me scratching my head. I'm like, come on, man. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I know. Cause he played on one of my, I have another team on this list. He, he was, Will Chamberlain, I think is the only player. Yes, he's the only player that are on two of my top five teams, and I think that's because he really, he really loved his sixty, the nineteen sixty seven seventy sixers team. That was his favorite season to play on, and I think the fact that this team broke the record by winning sixty nine, broke the record by one game that the uh, his old team had done. And uh, but you know, and I give Chamber a lot of credit though as a player. I mean, he was getting older; he was thirty five that season. And I think finally he decided if I play 
the way Bill Russell played, I think that's what this team needs was rebounding and defense. Cause he only, I mean, he only scored 15 points a game, which for Chamberlain was low, but he scored, but he he pulled 20 rebounds. I mean, he just handled the paint defensively and cause he knew he had scores around him. Right. I mean, you have Goodrich West, you know, McMillan who filled in for Baylor, you know, and, and you know, Goodrich is one of those guards that I think, yeah, granted he's in the Hall of Fame, but a lot of people don't know about him and realize how good he really was. You know, even yeah. going back to his days at UCLA, he was an unbelievable, great point guard, you know, and he was, you know, Pat Riley was on that team as well, yeah. you know, as yeah. a reserve, um, you know, which a lot of people don't realize, but you know, that, that, that's not a bad choice. You know, I'm not mad at you for doing that. I know you're a Laker fan, like you said, and I'm a Celtic fan. But, you know, putting that team on that list is, you know, that's – I have to give you kudos for that. You know, I don't want to, but I have to. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. And that's the of, – of my top five, is the last thing I'll say about this. Of all my top five teams, the 72 Lakers were the only ones that don't – that did not have – the league MVP on their team that year. Mill, uh, George, Kareem, Kareem, Kareem was the MVP. MVP. Yeah, but... He was, and he was still with Milwaukee at the time. All the other teams that we'll get to here, all they all have the MVP on their team that year. All right, that's you know that's 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 another nugget I didn't realize, you know. But if you're but that that Laker team in '72, despite the fact that they won 33 in a row, that's sort of a, that's sort of surprising that. They did not, you know, they didn't have the MVP. But that just goes to show you the coaching style of Bill Sharman at the time. You know, because mm-hmm. he took over from from Brand Bradikoff, um, and he preached more of a more of a defensive oriented. He brought a little bit from a little Celtic tradition from you know to the lake to LA. You know, more of a team oriented type of basketball, and, and with, it, which with that squad, it really worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bill Sharman knew how to put together a team. He learned a lot, you know, playing under Auerbach with Bill Russell and Kuzi and, uh, and those other guys and the, uh, Sam Jones. And, yeah, he he learned how to develop a team from being on the Celtics. So it's still, even though I love those Lakers, it still irks me a bit that it took a Celtic to help the Lakers win the championship. <laughs> Nicely put. But, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we talked about the 96 Bulls and we talked about the 72 Lakers. And again, those are two teams that I, that I have on my list of, of, of top five. Okay, those, those are two. So so who you got next on your list? Yeah, this one I know you're going to have on your list. The 1986 Boston Celtics. They, yes. went 60, they went 67 and 15. Casey Jones was leading the way. Larry Bird won MVP that year, uh, led the team in scoring. Um, I mean, and they are, and they just roll through, and and uh, they ended up beating the Houston Rockets in the finals, which was unexpected because everybody thought they were going to meet up with the Lakers again after they just played in '84. They were looking forward to the Lakers, and the Lakers got upset by the Houston Rockets, and uh, and the Rockets they just weren't ready. They weren't ready for that big stage. That was one of you know the the, the infamous Ralph Sampson shot against the Lakers to eliminate them. That. That sticks in the craw of every Laker fan I know because my best friend is a diehard Laker fan, and I remember we were watching that game 
in his living room. I was a Celtic fan. He was a Laker fan, and we watched it. He, when, when Samson hit that miracle shot to beat them in the forum, he almost got punished because he took something and threw it at the TV. Luckily missed and his mama caught him. And it was, it, I'm sitting there cracking up laughing. And, and at the same time, I'm in total shock that Ralph Samson hit like a shot. He just like threw it off the back of his head and it just went in. Yeah. He wasn't and, even looking. Yeah, he didn't even, even look. Looking. He just threw it up because it was so such a you know they're really up against the clock. But that '86 Celtic team, forty-one and one at home. Yes, yes, they, the best home, still the best home record ever. You know, trivia question: Who did they lose to in that final? Who did they lose that one oh, game to? Oh, oh. Uh, it's somebody they should not have lost to. I want to say, but no, I can't remember. It was Portland. Oh my word. It was Portland. Yeah. They lost to Portland in December of that year. In December of 85, they lost to the Trailblazers at, in the Garden uh, with a young Clyde Drexler, but, which was one of my favorite players, by the way. Anyway, um, but the, that Celtic team, they, 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 they just buzzed through the, the Houston Rockets, you know, in I think in six games, if I'm not mistaken. You know, but that Rockets team, they got there, but they were just not – a not really ready for you know ready for prime time at least be at least not ready against that that Celtic team yeah I mean you got Akeem Olajuwon was only in his second year with the team so he was still learning I mean Ralph Sampson was only in his with third year Sampson was only in his third year so they, they didn't really have that veteran leadership to help him kind of navigate you know what it is to play in the finals meanwhile you got the Celtics that had already won they already won two championships, and I think this was their fourth trip of the decade. Yeah, the, I mean, they with, had been a one in eighty one against the Rockets. Yeah, you know, it, it, they beat the Rockets in eighty one, and then they went back in eighty four, and they beat the Lakers in eighty four. They lost to the Lakers in eighty five, and they were back in eighty six. You know, this, so this was their third consecutive Eastern Conference championship going up against the Houston Rockets, and the the, the Celtics was a huge favorite. You know, over Houston. Um, but you know, you look at that team, you know, this was, you know, this was at the height of the Celtic dynasty of the eighties, you know, with Bird, McHale and Parrish, you know, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge, you know, you had guys like Scott Wedman coming off the bench. You had Greg Kite coming off the bench. You had a lot of really solid players on that team that was on the, that was coming off the bench for the, for the Celtics team. And they just seemed like they just did everything right. Also, not to mention Bill Walton. You know, who yeah. had won a championship with Portland, and then he he came in and doing. I think it was the uh, the year before, or maybe that that earlier that year, they, they engineered a trade to get Bill Walton into Boston, and he was like that final piece. You know, yeah. like not they really needed a final piece, but they were just an additional piece of additional veteran leadership. You know, that would help the Celtics along in the postseason that year. Yeah, that was one of only for Walton in his entire career. Because everybody knows how injured he was. He missed he missed like almost 70% of his career due to injury. But that year with the Celtics, he played the most games he ever played. That was the healthiest year he ever had. He played 80 out of 82 games that year. And none, none of his other seasons even come close uh, in terms of how many games he played. So they got a healthy Walton. Arbach rolled the dice, and he, he was there uh, for them. And yeah, he was a big piece of that because he was such a good passer. I mean, you want to call him. I mean, just kind of making up a term here, you know, point center. 
yeah. Walton, could, he could pass almost as well as Bird could pass. And to yeah. have two of those guys that just love being playmakers, man, he he just he supercharged them. I mean, they were great already, but he coming off the bench, coming in for Parrish uh, or McHale, he was, uh, yeah, he was just a, another piece that just helped them dominate. Yeah, one thing I remember about the the, the '86 Celtics that you know you think about you know the front line of you know Bird, Parrish, and McHale, but the backcourt was doesn't really get a lot of notoriety with you know with no. um Ainge and Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson was the one that you could p- basically put on their best player and have him play defense and Dan- and Danny Ainge was just an irritant, who was a streak shooting irritant. You know, <laughs> and every great Celtic team has always had that one guy that nobody like really likes. You know, and Danny Ainge fit that role perfectly. He took he took over for Cedric Maxwell. Exactly. <laughs> but you're right. Exactly. That, I mean, DJ's in the Hall of Fame, rightly so. You know, and Ainge, yeah. I mean, they were solid. He had four Hall of Famers in the starting lineup, and then Danny Ainge, who was a solid player, a good a good outside shooter, and then a probably I mean, he probably outdid his playing career with his executive career. Yeah. Um, because he was such a good executive, but uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of experience. These are guys who had been around. They knew what it was to win. They knew what it was to play as a team. And um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was just, yeah, they're one of the greats, one of the great teams. All right. So we got the, the, the 96 Bulls, you had the 72 Lakers, and then you have the 86 Boston Celtics. Now who's next on your list? Yeah. Next I had was the 1967 76ers. I had mentioned them already. They were 68 and 13, which at the time set the record for most wins in a season with 68. And Chamberlain was their MVP. They had Hall of Famer Hal Greer. They had Hall of Famer Billy Cunningham. Those guys are on the 75 list as well. Um, And uh, and yeah, that was that was the only year that Bill Russell didn't play in the finals. Yes. Was with 1967 when uh, Philadelphia took them out in the Eastern Conference Finals. But yeah, they was they, they they again the record for most wins in a season. They win the championship. They knocked out Russell and the Celtics. Chamberlain wins MVP. They were, uh, I mean, they're, they're just loaded, absolutely loaded. That was one of those years that that you may find every now and then in sports that the two best teams in the league that year faced off in a series just short of the finals because yes. you had the Celtics and the. The Sixers, those are the two best teams in the league that year. And then Philly ended up playing uh, the San Francisco Warriors. Warriors. Yeah, his old team. Yeah, they ended up playing the San Francisco Warriors for the NBA championship with with Rick Barry and and, uh, Nate Nate Thurman. Yes. Um, Then you had, you know, not only that Philadelphia team had Hal Greer and they they had uh, Will Chamberlain, but they also had Wally Jones, they had Chet the Jet Walker, had a young Mm -hmm. Matt Gukas, who a lot of a lot of people remember as being an announcer for the for the NBA when it was on NBC, Um, coached by Alex Hannum. Uh, That was a very 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 solid team. Um, They interrupted the Celtic dynasty. You know, because they had won all these championships in a row, but when it came down to 1967, if I'm not mistaken, that was Bill Russell's first year as a player coach. 
Yes. It, yeah, that was his first year as being a, being a player coach. And they ended up beating the Celtics in Philly in six games. And a lot of people were wondering whether the Celtic dynasty had ended or because the players were getting so old. They had played so many games over the years. And you had this young Philadelphia 76er team who finally got over the hump and beating the Celtics after losing to them year after year after year in the Eastern Conference Finals. And they finally got through and they ended up beating a a very good and, and, and one thing about that series that a lot of people don't remember was Rick Barry of how uh, his I think if I'm not mistaken he still has the highest scoring finals per game average ever I think he averaged something like 38 or 36 points per game in the finals yeah. that year for a team that lost you know yeah. but you know and, and you know everybody talks about Jerry West was the first player to win MVP that came from losing team. But they didn't have the MVP award back then. Had they had it, it was a possibility that Rick Barry could have been finals MVP despite them being on the losing team. Yeah, absolutely. I know, absolutely. Yeah, they had uh, – um, yeah, I remember Matt Gukas as the coach. I think he coached Orlando. Yeah, he did. He coached Orlando for a while. I think he coached a little while for Philly as well. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they had another guy. I know he barely played. His name is Bob Weiss, and he, I think, very briefly coached the Hawks. Yes, he did. Um, he, didn't contribute, he didn't contribute much to this team, but yeah, they were they interrupted that uh, the title. And I'm sure in, in Boston they were probably uh, fans were upset. You know, oh, if Arbach had been there, you know, if Arbach had been on the sideline, maybe that wouldn't have turned out that way. I mean, but obviously Bill Russell proved himself. They came back and won the next two as player coach. So uh, his legacy, his legacy is secure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, I mean, I think back, you know, that, that 67 team and you, and we talked about Gail Goodrich being an underrated hall of famer. How about Hal Greer? Yeah. I, you know, I do um, an entire episode when way back, I forget even how far back it is, but on Hal Greer is one of the unsung uh, great guards in NBA history. Nobody talks to me. Oh, who are the great guards? You know, it seems like everybody you'll talk about, you know, Jordan is one of the great guards. Um, you'll talk about, you know, today, maybe it's like CP3, you talk about uh, Steph Curry, but Hal Greer gets lost in the shuffle because he played in the shadow of Will Chamberlain, even though he was a legitimate scorer, he averaged uh, 22 that season they won, but he was in the high, high to mid, you know, mid to high twenties, almost his whole career. Um, And he's just one of those guys that just doesn't get talked about, but that guy could bring it any night of the week. Um, as as a scorer, he just he had one of the great. Well, back then uh, they would have considered it outside shot. Today we call it a mid range. Back yeah. then that was an out that was an outside shot, and he and he could fill it up. You know, how great you, you also talked about Billy Cunningham, you know, guys, you know, like our age, remember him as being the head coach of the Sixers when they won the yeah. championship in 83. But a lot of people don't realize, remember him being such of a great player, AKA the kangaroo kid from North Carolina. You know, he was a very, very good athletic forward. Yeah. Oh yeah. They, yeah. Cause he, I mean, he called the main kangaroo because of the, he was leaping ability. You know, he was a little bit undersized, but back then he made it work. Um, He averaged, what, 18? I think I have it down here as 18, that championship season. He was legit, too. Um, And again, gets because of his success as a coach of the Sixers, I think it kind of outshines what he did as a player for the Sixers, which was significant. He deserves to be on the 75 list. 
Um, you know, unfortunately, with a lot of these old guys, and I talk about this a lot in my show, it's just because there's not enough video compared to guys today. There just isn't enough video to really sit there and make, even though anybody who saw them play goes, oh, yeah, Cunningham definitely deserves uh, the accolades. It's just, you know, you, you put a highlight package together, these guys, and it's like two minutes long compared right. to uh, guys today, you know. Uh, I mean, you get two a lot of out of a week, you know. week. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. Because they just didn't have no, not they didn't, they weren't archiving all the games like they do today. So there's a lot of that is just lost. They play games with, with without any cameras, and uh, so it's just kind of a shame we don't have that video to go to. We have a little bit, but just not enough, really. Okay, now now we're going to wrap it up with you. Your 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 fifth team. Um, you have the Bulls in '96. You had the '72 Lakers, the '86 Celtics, and the '67 76ers. Yeah. This next one, I, I, I really struggled with this one. Um, and who would I put here? Because, and I, was, it's, I had the 2016 Warriors. And the reason I struggled was because they didn't win the championship. But, it's, but, I don't, but at the same time, I didn't want to take away from the fact that they still went 73-9. and nine, the, yes. best rec- the best regular season record of all time. Watching them through the regular season, I mean – they were just a force. All five players moving around, the ball touching almost everybody's hands on every possession, and then you know getting it to Steph or or Clay for the for that three pointer. But it was more than just the, the Splash Brothers. I mean, they they uh, you know I just loved what they did. I love the way Steve Kerr you know coaches that team, bringing you know all the best of the triangle from his Bulls days, but also bringing in like defensive principles that he learned under Popovich when he played with the Spurs. And just kind of, you know, mixing it all together with the guys that he's got. And um, so, yeah, I, I kind of was reluctant, but I put him at my number five just because they, they did. I mean, it was just one game, right? It was yeah. one game. If they win, if they win game seven, then I'm putting them up at least number two, debatable number one, if they win that game seven. But because they lost that one game, uh, it, it just took them down to five for me. That's that's right, Adam. I mean, I, I, I can't debate you on that because, again, it was like that, that Warriors team with Curry and Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, you know, Iguodala. You know, I mean, those guys, it was like watching the Harlem Globetrotters at times. Yeah. Because it was, I mean, it was like, and Steve Kerr had pretty much did something that no one really thought was possible in basketball. He took the best elements of those Bulls teams that he was on and the best elements of those, uh, of the, of the Bulls and the best elements of the Spurs and put them together and, and also gave the, gave his players latitude to be themselves with those three things going, those three aspects of that team that made them almost unstoppable, but them going up against LeBron in Cleveland, in that finals, they weren't going to be denied. Yeah, and I think, and I, I know people can debate this, whatever. But if was it a game? Was it game five that Draymond got that technical? Yes, and, he had, and then he, he had right. to miss game. And he had to miss game six. If Draymond does not get that technical and he finishes game five and plays game, game six, six, yeah, I don't. Then I, history I, may I, be different. It, it, quite different because he's such a key part of their defense. Well, and their offense too, but I mean, he's such a, he's one of those guys that when he's not there, you feel it, you know, he's not a leading scorer. He wasn't leading the league in rebounds, 
but he knows how to make everything run more smoothly when he's out there. And uh, I think they really missed him. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that Golden State Warriors team, I mean, again, was so much fun to watch. And, and, and Golden State, for a lot of years, even before the Splash Brothers, was a very fun team to watch, believe it or not, because even though they weren't winning a lot of games, and when they finally, when they beat the Mavericks in the playoffs, I think it was in 07, you know, when they upset the Mavericks, uh, it gave people like a little bit of, a, around the country, a little bit of an idea of what basketball was like in the Bay Area if the Warriors were good. You yeah. know, because they they had like one of the most raucous crowds. Them in Sacramento, but in my opinion, two of the most raucous crowds in the NBA, especially when their teams are good. And and you kind of like saw a little preview of that, even though that team wasn't there yet. But you know, we had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson with as the Splash Brothers. They were again, like I said, they were like the the, the Harlem Globetrotters of the NBA. You know, without the striped shorts. They were just yeah. so great. You know, they were just so much fun to watch. And it was, and them not being on, them being not winning a championship, you know, it's like, wow. You know, like seeing them win 73 and nine, you know, and not winning it. That's, that's, that's almost like the, what the Patriots had done in the, in, in, in the NFL yeah. going undefeated and losing. In, in the, the final minute to the Giants. That's essentially what, that was like the NBA's version of that. Yeah, it was because I think in that game seven, I mean, they only lost by like three or four points. I don't remember the exact right. score. But it came into that final minute where LeBron comes out of nowhere to block Iguodala. Yep. And then I think, and then they come right back and Kyrie hits that dagger three pointer and that, that kind of closed the door. But they, but the Warriors were there until like the final 30 seconds. Yes. You know, and that was like one of the more exciting NBA finals, you know, because it kept going back and forth. You had controversy with Draymond Green and you had the the, the, the dramatic game seven finish, you know, because when LeBron blocked the shot, I came out of my chair like, oh, my God, he blocked it. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. could Cleveland finally win? You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's what I was thinking, you know, and 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 that's exactly what happened they you know they you know Kyrie hits the big three pointer from the elbow and uh I remember him hit, hitting that shot and I'm like oh my god they're gonna actually win it and yeah. and it, that was you know I don't know if you could call that a, an upset in a way you could on paper you could but I don't yeah. know you know would, would you consider that finals an upset well I mean if you get to the finals you're there for a reason so Cleveland was there for a reason but yeah, I mean, the Warriors were so heavily favored. And I guess that's the only way to look at it. They were so heavily favored that, yeah, I think it qualifies as an upset. You know, they, they really should have won. Draymond should not have gotten that technical in game five. Right. Um, I mean, that, I, that, that, is, that was a huge moment. That was a huge moment. That opened the door for, for Cleveland. And um, I mean, it, 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 that didn't have to be opened from the Warriors' perspective. Right. And I did want to say something else because I lived in the Bay Area from 92 to 97 I lived in the Bay Area went to college out there and I remember thinking the Warriors weren't very good back then but I remember just being living in there I was like man you guys really love the Warriors right here they're not very they good. do they really do you know and, and it's and it been like that for years 
Yeah, and I had, I mean, being, you know, being from Louisiana, growing, you know, living in Louisiana at the time, now I'm living in Atlanta, but, you know, living and growing up in Louisiana, we would catch a Warriors game on TV every now and then. And, uh, and you would see them even during the days of the run TMC days with Mitch Richmond and Tim Hardaway and Chris Mullen. They were filling it up then. And maybe it's just something in the water with them scoring a lot of points and being very exciting games to watch. And the fans are just so into it out there. It was, it was incredible. Yeah, no, they definitely, and, and you know, having lived there, having seen it, I went to a couple of Warriors games back then. Um, uh, and yeah, the crowd, the crowd, they show up. Warriors fans show up and I'll give them credit. I mean, what they're doing now is incredible, but that fan base has been like that going back to when the team moved out there from, from Philadelphia moved out to become the San Francisco Warriors, man, they were on board from day one. Now I have like a few on here that I think deserve like honorable mention. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, but you pretty much, like I said before, you pretty much completed my five. Because those are the five that I have down. You know? Oh, wow. Those are the five that I have down. It, You're not it, necessarily it, in that order, but I had the Bulls, the 96 Bulls number one. I have, no, I take that back. We don't have the same order. We don't have the, you know, the, there's one team that I, that's on my five that you didn't include. Okay. Number two is the Celtics of 86. But number three was the 1983 Philadelphia 76ers with Dr. J and Moses Malone, the full, full, full Sixers. You know, with with Moses Malone, Dr. J, Maurice Cheeks, Andrew Toney, a.k.a. the Boston Strangler. Um, You you had, I I think Lionel Hollins was on that team. You have uh, Bobby Bobby Jones, Jones, Mark Ivoroni, you know. The, those guys that that just blew through the that just blew through the playoffs. I think they lost like two games in the entire postseason. They swept the Lakers in four in the finals. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to bring that up, but you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I was I remember that was actually that was the first finals I remember watching as a kid. The very first one. Yeah. I was 10 years old in in the summer of 83, and that was the first finals I ever watched, and I fell in love with it ever since. Um, But, yeah, the the Philadelphia 76ers, the Dr. J and Moses Malone, they were were dominant, and it was – we finally got Dr. J over the hump. You know, we finally got a championship when Moses arrived from Houston. And that – that I don't even know – what the thought process was because they had they had all these hall of famers on that team a lot of the guys you mentioned a bunch of them are in the hall of fame but they couldn't get past the celtics right and then then that summer the summer right before in 82 you know moses malone he wins the mvp for houston in 82 and then houston traded him to the 76ers and the i think 76ers only gave up daryl dawkins and maybe a pick or something then, like they got, they basically stole Moses Malone, the reigning MVP, and he wins MVP again. Yes, exactly. And uh, and Philly finally wins the championship for the Doc. You know, and, and that was that was that was, in my opinion, one great team. I have two more. I got two more that's honorable mention that should right. be mentioned. One, the '71 Milwaukee Bucks with Kareem and Oscar <laughs> right. Robertson yeah. together. You know, yeah. that, I mean, the, the 
young, the, the youngest expansion team to win an NBA championship because it was that was like what their third year third? of existence. It was only their third year of existence, and they're the champions. Yeah, it was but only their third year, and then they end up winning the whole thing because the engine they, they 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 drafted Kareem out of UCLA based on a coin flip with them in yes. Phoenix, and then mm-hmm. they engineered a trade to get Oscar Robertson. And then you had some great players on that team, like Lucius Allen was on the team, John McLaughlin was on that team. They were they had a deep, very, very deep squad in Milwaukee. And they had, if I'm not mistaken, they made the playoffs the year before they got Oscar with Kareem, a young Kareem Abu Jabbar. They had made the playoffs the year before, if I'm not mistaken, but they lost in I think they lost to Boston. No, or the I think they lost to the Knicks. Then yeah, I forgot which we was. Yeah, it was it was some yeah it was something like that because um, Kareem was a was a game changer. And I actually made this joke because I talk about it in one of my episodes because you said it came down to that coin flip between Milwaukee and Phoenix. Whoever wins the coin flip gets Kareem, and uh, and I said uh, and then Phoenix took Neil Walk. I said, you ever heard of Neil? That's Walk? right. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's said, one of the great trivia questions of all time. Who I, was like, I had to look the guy up. <laughs> That's one of the great trivia questions of all basketball trivia questions of all time. You know, Kareem went one. Who went number two to Phoenix? Neil Walk. <laughs> and the other team that I have on this list, and I would be in deep, deep, deep trouble if I did not mention this on my podcast because of my godfather, who is a big New York Knicks fan. And he says, and he always said, I had to, and I have to agree with him, the 73 Knicks. Yeah. You know, yeah, because if you look at that team, the entire starting five is in the Hall of Fame. Yes. The entire starting five I, is in the Hall of Fame. The, the, the coach is in the Hall of Fame. You also have another uh, player, uh, Jerry Lucas is in the Hall of Fame. Phil yeah, Jackson, who's in the Hall of Fame, but not as a player, but as a coach. You know, yeah. that team, if that, 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 that team is the definition of loaded. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that kind it, of talent, it's, yeah, it's insane. Like seven or eight Hall of Famers on that team. And not to mention they have one of the greatest games in NBA history was the game was game six in Boston in, the, in that final Eastern Conference Finals. And of all people, Dean Meminger comes off the <laughs> bench and destroys the Celtics. And people, people still talk about, the, quote, unquote, the dream game. And, you know, with Dean Meminger, you know, with that, you know, then you also had Dave Stallworth on that team. You had, you had some really solid players on that 73 Knicks team. And if I didn't mention them, I would be in deep trouble with my, with my godfather because he's a diehard Knicks yeah. fan. Bless his soul. Yeah. <laughs> Bless what, his heart. So, no, I, that, that definitely deserves an honorable mention. What was so great about those Knicks teams in the 73 is I don't think anybody – I'd have to look it up, but I don't think anybody averaged more than 15 or 16 a game, but it was, but it was like four of them were all in that kind of like between 14, it was like five guys all scoring between 14 and 16 a game. It was that you couldn't concentrate on anybody because everybody could shoot that ball. Everybody could shoot that ball. And then the, and the, then the Knicks engineered a trade to get Earl Monroe. Yeah. And what was so great about it was that when he came over from from Baltimore, there was a lot of people that thought that it wouldn't work no. with, with, you know, with Clyde Frazier and Earl yeah. Monroe in the same backcourt. The well, people they, they wouldn't, yeah. But what happened was that Earl 
basically curtailed his game to fit the system, which you don't really see now. No, he did because he walked to that team. He's like, all right, this team has already won a championship. I'm trying to win a championship. I just want to fit in. And that was incredible on the part of Earl Monroe to, to approach it like that. And, and uh, uh, when he walked into that locker room, like on the first day, first day he shows up at practice, everybody in there kind of came up, shook his hand, said, welcome to the team. And the one guy who kind of hung back a little bit was, was Frazier because he knew that this guy plays the same position. We've been battling each other mm-hmm. in the Easter Conference back when there were fewer teams. So they would play each other eight, nine times a season. And uh, but then finally, Clyde goes, hey, man, it's cool. If you're cool, I'm cool. Let's do this. And, yeah. uh, and he was able to relax and just, you know, fit into what they were doing. Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, they, that team deserves so much credit for how they approached the game, uh, the way they shared the ball. They moved. Nobody, nobody. Uh, they, I mean, I don't think those players led the league in any one category because, again, Everybody was scoring in the teens. Nobody was scoring in the 20s. Nobody was grabbing rebounds in the high teens. I mean, everybody shared the load. Uh, and almost every way you slice and dice it, they were just, everybody helped carry, uh, you know, carry their load and, and um, get through the championship. One thing about that Knicks team that I hear so often from guys who watched, who've seen them play, both fans and media person, media people alike, is that, the thrill watching that team just is is what was so thrilling was they passed the ball so well. Everything about yeah. them was so fundamentally solid that it was almost, you know, you can't find anything wrong with that team because, like you were saying, nobody's on that team is averaging more than 15 points a game. Nobody on that team is, there's not one person that you can concentrate on defensively. If I mean, I mean, think about. It. I mean, you got Earl Monroe and Walt Frazier in the backcourt. It's mm-hmm. impossible for both of them to have bad games. Okay. Yeah. Then you have Dave DeBusher, Willis Reed, and Bill Bradley in the front court. Mm-hmm. Then you got Jerry <laughs> Lucas coming <laughs> off the bench. Off the bench. <laughs> you know how did they lose? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm trying to figure out how these. Stayed under the salary cap with all those I know guys. with all with all that talent, with all that talent, multiple all stars, each one of them, you know, and then you coach, and then you're being coached by Red Holzman, who's one of the most underrated coaches ever, you know, you know, yeah. he won two championships with the Knicks in New York City, which nobody has ever done before, nobody's ever won a championship with other than Red Holzman in New York, but yeah, he's one of the most underrated coaches ever. It's the, he's the, he's the other red, you know, yes. that, uh, that, uh, people don't talk about. Yeah. He deserves to be out there. He didn't even, he wasn't even looking to be the coach. He was like the scout. Yeah. He was like the head scout for the team. And they're like, Hey, how about you become an assistant? He's like, yeah, okay, maybe. And then he's the head coach. He's like, okay. he's like, I don't know, I'm be looking for this, but okay. And he, but, he, but he did a magical job keeping, you know, they, they played such hard defense. And, and I, I did, a, I did a story back. Uh, it was a, it was a Willis Reed story. But I talk about the fact that that had to be also one of the smartest teams in NBA. I mean, academically smart. And I talk about the fact that Bill Bradley was an, a Rhodes Scholar. A Rhodes Scholar, yes, right. Yeah. Jerry Lucas, um, I want to get this right. Yeah. Jerry Lucas, he wrote books on memory. He would memorize huge sections of the New York City phone book and then go on talk shows and show people how how his memory was. So he, he, he has like a photographic memory. And I 
think Stallworth got his uh, or not Stallworth. Is that my thinking that right? Yeah. Oh, was it Dick Barnett? Dick. Oh, Barnett. Yeah. So you're right. No, it was Barnett got a PhD after okay, he, he retired. He had a PhD in, in education. It got a. It was a like a college professor. Yeah. And then uh, you know it, it's like these guys. These guys could have played a team version of Jeopardy, and they would have smoked everybody. Basketball or Jeopardy? What do you want? We'll smoke you both ways. Right. They were they were academic. They were just very very cerebral people. Um, each one of those guys, you know. Um, but yeah, this was awesome, Rick. I really appreciated this. Uh, going through, going down the going down memory lane on the NBA, talking with the professor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much. No, it's so much fun to be here. It's so much fun to talk talk to you. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, I don't because my family they're sick of me talking about basketball all the time. So to be able to sit down and talk with somebody who's extremely knowledgeable about the game and can you know rattle stuff off the top of their head and just has that deep knowledge like you do, it's just a, a total pleasure for me. Oh man, thanks a lot, man. Uh, and once again, um, let me reintroduce you, the host of Basketball History One Hundred and One. Mr. Rick Loiza, who is also a member of the Sports History Network. Uh, Rick, one more time, man. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, too. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sports history books pick up your copy today soundtrack provided by kevin mcleod of filmmusic.io and that will do it for this edition of the historically speaking sports podcast once again i would like to thank rick loiza for coming on and talking and talking nba history and dropping some knowledge on us on this particular episode He's a longtime show uh, friend, contributor to the show, longtime friend. So I want to thank him once again for coming on. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you hear podcasts. And also, don't forget to check out our Twitter feed at historically sp2. You can check us out on Twitter there. Also, you can drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And please, once again, don't forget to subscribe. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, saying so long, and I'll check you out next time. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. 
Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.